Hello, dear friends, gentle listeners, and newcomers. Thank you for participating with us today. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Community is the key. Within community, we can each have stimulating thoughts, expanded consciousness, and enhanced mental and physical health. Without community, we are isolated, alienated souls, bouncing like atoms from place to place with nowhere to land, no safe place for comfort and sustenance. Our distinguished guest today, Peter Wells, has been studying, teaching, and practicing community here in Mendocino County on California's North Coast for most of his adult life. Many of you know him as the founder, with Fleury Healy, of the world-famous Albion River Inn. Stay tuned for this exciting and educational interview with Peter Wells and learn about his concept of living harmoniously and about the festival he will be putting on called Harmonious on Purpose on Saturday, September 9th from 12 to 12 a.m., 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. There were times in recent history when people were living the opposite of harmoniously on such a grand scale that it is referred to as the Holocaust. A Holocaust is destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. A German pastor, Martin Niemöller, a former Nazi supporter, wrote the following poem to describe Nazi Germany. First they came for the Jews, but I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communists, but I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up for me. In the spirit of these famous words, and with the disclaimer that anything you hear on this program is that of the specific speakers only, and does not in the very slightest necessarily represent the views of anyone else whatsoever, specifically including KZYX and its entire staff of paid and volunteer workers, I offer you the following. The President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, would have us believe that there is a moral equivalence between those marching with rifles and sidearms, chanting hate against Jews and blacks, while affirming white supremacy and neo-Nazism, and those who publicly counter them. The President is saying the two groups are morally equivalent. Our elected President supports his contention of moral equivalency by pointing out that there are violent people and good people on both sides. Surely our president is correct in pointing out that there were violent people on both sides during the recent Charlottesville, Virginia confrontation in which a Nazi sympathizer weaponized a motorized vehicle and murdered one woman and maimed others. But our president completely loses his moral authority and evidences his mental instability when he would have us believe 
that there is such a thing as a good Nazi or a good white supremacist. In fact, our president fails to comprehend the moral significance of his saying that there are good people who seek to degrade and or destroy another human being based on their religious beliefs, race, skin, color, sexual preference, or personal taste. Proactively seeking to degrade and or destroy other humans based on their beliefs or conditions they were born with is profoundly immoral or malevolent, which is the very definition of evil itself. By implying that there are good Nazis, good white supremacists, good people who clearly chant hate, the President of the United States is aiding and abetting their violent cause. In effect, what the President is doing is similar to describing a violent rape as a situation in which both people are violent. The president is attempting to turn self-defense into a violent act by pointing out that the victim scratched, clawed, and bit the rapist. The First Amendment grants us freedom of speech. The First Amendment does not grant us the right to incite violence towards others. To do so is clearly illegal. Let us here remember that when this president was a presidential candidate, he vowed to pay the legal bills of anyone caught punching one of the protesters at his rally. If you differ with my point of view, give me a call and enjoy your First Amendment rights. Just don't threaten anyone when you call in. The number here is 707 937 5103. Our guest today, Peter Wells, is well known as the co-founder, along with Flory Healy, of the world-famous Albion River Inn. Peter is also a film writer of The Cage, which he produced and filmed here in Mendocino. He's the writer and producer of a musical play about Krishnamurti, Blue Dove, which he produced in Hollywood. I attended that opening in 2004. Peter also is producer of several CDs on which he performs his original work. Originally from England, Peter was trained as an actor at the National Youth Theatre and later played in a BBC series, Dixon of Doc Green. He also appeared with Angela Lansbury here in Mendocino. He was in two episodes of Murder, She Wrote. In the name of full transparency, I tell you that Peter and I are close and dear personal friends, and I had the privilege of attending opening night at his Albion River Inn some 34 years ago in 1983. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Peter. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. Peter, as I said in my opening, you've been engaged in practicing, teaching, and living in community and working on doing so harmoniously for your entire adult life. That's true. Can you give us some background on that? How did that come to be? You came here first from England, 
almost penniless in the way that Benjamin Franklin came to Philadelphia with one loaf of bread under his arm? I had a dollar ten when I arrived in San Francisco. Tell us a little about that story as background to what you're going to be bringing forth today about Harmonious on Purpose, the festival of living harmoniously here in Mendocino. Well, thank you, Richard. Yes, well, I arrived uh, not knowing anybody and with a dollar ten. And I spent that dollar ten at a jazz club called the Black Hawk, where the modern jazz quartet were playing. I happened to be a big fan. And it cost a dollar ten for a beer in those days. It was a lot. So I spent the dollar ten having a beer at the Black Hawk. But, you know, I had left England because I just needed to live in a way that was not, didn't seem possible in England. Yes, you could excel. You could um, be a good actor. You could be a good director. You'd be a good writer. But the country itself was having a very hard time. And I did not feel completely comfortable there. So I came over to America. Within a month of being in San Francisco in 1958, I had more friends and more um, pleasure than I had had ever in England. The work that I've been doing, or the work that I'm doing both in community and with Harmonious on Purpose, is really to do with living a more harmonious way of life than we've inherited. Both in England and here, there's been a, uh, a real difficulty in living um, with personal freedom or with any kind of peaceful uh, potential. Uh, when I arrived in San Francisco, the House on American Activities Committee was happening. Also, there were uh, sit-ins on Van Ness, Cad the Cadillac uh, dealership. And there was a lot of tumult, but there were people here who really, really cared. And it was possible to speak up. It was not so possible in England. Yes, there were people who spoke up. Bertrand Russell was a great example. And... Uh, there was the march, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, the march that went to Aldermaston, where many, many tens of thousands of people joined in to demonstrate. But um, the way of life, which was so stuck in uh, a uh, class struggle and was difficult to uh, connect with, and coming to America was a, a absolutely refreshing uh, case. Yeah, clearly uh, England's class system was much more defined than ours. Ours is somewhat, uh, how to put it, uh, sub rosa, shall we say? I mean, we certainly have a class system here, but we talk as if we don't. Well, there's there's money, there's new money, and there's old money. And then there's certain other... Um, in the East Coast, I guess, there's more class consciousness than there is on the West. But I've never, you know, living in Mendocino, one doesn't feel that. Um, one of the great things about living in this area is that you really can't tell anything about the person from the way they look, the way they dress, the way they live. Uh, people here are living in an individual way. 
I believe most of us come here from an urban life that is not satisfactory. And we come to this little coast, this village, uh, in order to be free with our own lives. What year did you first come here, Peter? Uh, well, I've arrived... Up to the Mendocino Coast. Mendocino, 1970. And I uh, lived on a ranch for two or three years and uh, tried to figure myself out. Would you to, say you were part of what was ref- what is referred to as the back-to-the-land movement of the yes. late 60s and the early 1970s? Absolutely. The yeah. back-to-the-land movement was a, was a, a movement of people, uh, uh, middle-class or upper-middle-class people, working people, professional people, who really uh, felt they had enough of city life, no longer thought that uh, city life was a, uh, a sustainable way to live. Isn't that correct? Yes. And they moved to the country in order to get back to the land, in order to sustain themselves, in order to live cooperatively. Is that correct? Well, I think uh, the most important part of it was actually in, to do with the consciousness. Yes, it was to do with getting back to the land. Yes, it was to do with being... Uh, out from the city and the urban traffic and the way of life. But uh, the real event that was going on, there was a lot of psychedelic experimentation, and we all were looking for something fresh. We didn't know where we were going, but the first thing was to go back to a simple life that we could uh, enjoy and not have various authorities breathing down our neck. Wasn't there also a spirit at that time of cooperation amongst the people who moved and were part of the Back to the Land movement? Wasn't there sort of somewhat of a, you might say, almost a rebellion against alienation and isolation and and an attraction towards cooperating with one another? Is that right? Absolutely. We were all doing the same thing. We were all in uh, another state of mind, in another condition. We were no longer conforming to what was required. We were out there making it work for ourselves. And because we were all doing that, there was a camaraderie that was shared. In 1970, I imagine, I didn't get here until 1975 myself. In 1970, this Mendocino and and Casper and... uh, and Fort Bragg was really out in the boonies, wasn't it? I mean, it was remote. Yep, that was the way it was seen. I think some people still see it as somewhat remote, but not as remote as it was then. Yeah, well, I don't think uh, anybody could see where it was going to develop. I had come from San Francisco and Mill Valley, and Mill Valley, since that time, has changed, and San Francisco have changed remarkably. But uh, And the changes here are not so great. The great thing, really, that happened from our move to the Mendocino Coast was that we were able to live in our own, on our own schedule, in our own way, and in community. I remember uh, I was living in the Ford House on Main Street. In Mendocino. In Mendocino. And we would go, I would go to the Seagull. And there was one night where I was there shortly after I arrived. And suddenly I realized I knew everybody in the place. There were about 40 people. 
And every single person was already known to me. It was a feeling of belonging. And it was remarkable. This is like 1972, 73. And I think that that's... The thing that we have here is we have the ability to be ourselves and to live with each other without any prescribed limitations. And so our relationships with each other um, build and we leave each other alone. We don't uh, require that we conform to this or that. Almost none of the people who have arrived from the city wanted to conform to belong to organizations, or any kind of um, institution. They really wanted to live in what uh, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson called the simple farmer taking care of his family and himself and his neighbors. Yeah, well, the simple farmer finally grew marijuana. The simple farmer finally grew marijuana, marijuana. and that really changed everything. It has, it? hasn't it? And now, of course, it's a big boom. It's like a, um, a whole new chapter. It's a very new chapter, whereas for the last 50 years, everyone involved in that industry has been illegal. All of a sudden, now they've become almost overnight legal entrepreneurs. There's still about a million or so, or two million, in jail. Uh, that's right. The largest number of people jailed for marijuana on the planet. Yes, and actually, more people in jail per capita in uh, the United States than anywhere else. Getting back to our local community, the village of Mendocino, it's actually, I think, uh, technically a town, um, has no government. Exactly. How does it work without a government, Peter. You've been here for almost 50 years. How does this work? How does a village, how does a group of people, what, almost a thousand, roughly a thousand people, how do they go about life without this government that we're supposed to have? Well, there's been uh, attempts to form a city council, and each time it's been voted down. Uh, Of course, there is the county. The county government, the board of supervisors, still basically rules and regulates Mendocino. But they know better than to come to Mendocino and to try to rule and regulate these weird people that we are who are absolutely individual and have no real desire to be incorporated. So the place is, there's no um, parking meters, there's no city council, there's no local police force. There's no local police force. Right. There's no crime. You've been here almost 50 years, and you look me in the eye and say there's no crime. Well, no, People don't hold up stores with guns. They don't. There's no crime against the person. Of course, marijuana has been a crime. No, no longer. But the whole um, emphasis has been on freedom, our freedom. Can you remember hearing of a violent crime in the village of Mendocino? No. Not even in your memory. Can you remember hearing about someone holding up a business with a firearm? No. There have been uh, some break-ins. There were more. I don't know what's currently going on, but I don't think, you know, young people 
or uh, people who aren't living in the area visit and might break into a store to see what they can get. That's the worst. Um, Fort Bragg is a different story. It has a police force and is much more um, controlled. I, th- I think the crime level in Fort Bragg is also extremely low. It's become lower and lower. There are talks of um, gangs, but... Um, one doesn't hear about beatings. One doesn't hear about shootings, knifings, and the like that you hear about in cities. Yep. That's the, true. Would, would be fair to say that as a result of this level of safety and community, that the fear level of the local population is significantly lower than the average fear level around the country? Oh, God. It's absolutely, you know, there's such a difference because people are free here. They're not worried about somebody busting them, and they're not uh, afraid of their neighbors. And, you know, everybody wants to be just themselves, and they want to develop and find out how to live this life. We have a better way of living here than we do in the city, you know. The main thing, as far as I'm concerned, that's going on, and that's why Harmonious on Purpose is on the agenda, is we're, uh, we're going through a change in consciousness. The consciousness that we took on as we grew up, we were told we had to do as we were told, and we had to be obedient to authority, and we had to learn the ways of the country, and the legal system, and we had to be very aware that the power was outside of us, that it was on uh, on a throne, on a, in a law court. Um, it was not. Um, it, it was not a comfortable thing to be brought up in our world. That's in England and here too, where the child is dominated from the word go and is told that they have to be obedient to the authorities. To an outside authority. To, to an outside authority. And the thing that's happened that is gradually changing everything, I think we're going into a new civilization, actually, around it, is that we learn, after some hard work, we learn that the power is actually within us. I'm reminded of a story that uh, my daughter, Evacheska Toa, came back from school and told me, when she was four years old, she said, Dad, she said, I sit in the class and I see that people get feelings inside of themselves and they start looking around the room or talking to the teacher about what's causing these feelings. They don't know that the feelings are inside. They're looking somewhere outside for them. Uh-huh, four good. years old, she yes. said that. And that's what you're talking about. Well, what I'm talking about is the the structure of our culture is that we have to be obedient to powers outside of ourselves. Yes. And that gradually, by living in a place like this, and by having the time and the freedom to really examine our own being, we can find the connection between us and the universe, if you will. The, the energy that is running this being is not mental only. There's more than a mentality going on. Yes, I have a mind. Yes, I have language. Yes, I can choose. And I can look in the corners and I can not choose this and I can choose that. However, beyond the choice, 
there is an intelligence happening. And that intelligence is running the whole being. And that intelligence is not um, definable. For example, the, um, the ability to think has the ability to understand through science what our condition is, has almost no, um, has no ability to deal with the whole intelligence that's using this life. The whole intelligence that is my brain is happening without my thought. My thinking is not the whole picture. My thinking is really similar to owning a device such as a computer. My thinking is an aspect of myself. Yes. It's, a, it's, a, it's something I have at my disposal, but it's only a piece of me. That's what you're saying. Yeah, well, I'm saying that, okay, um, we can think about our condition, but our condition is way beyond our thinking. We, our thinking is limited, whereas our actual condition is not. We're here in a, in a, we're a human soul, and that soul has more going on than we can think of. Now, if we believe that everything is uh, determined by thought and by word, by law, by um, requirements, then we're limiting the actual ability that we have. The intelligence of the whole being is far greater than we can think of. And yet we are that intelligence. So how do we deal with this? What does this mean? It means that the mental equipment can only take us so far. For example, science does not understand the human brain, or is trying to and is working on it, but does not. And yet we are this human brain. And this human brain is operating on wavelengths that our mind, our thinking, cannot quite grasp. So this intelligence is a greater effect than our thinking. I think science would agree with you. I, I've read the Nobel laureates and, and, and some of the great uh, brain uh, researchers, and uh, I believe they would agree with you that we really don't understand. We have theories, but we really don't understand the workings of the mind or the greater intelligence that there appears to be above and beyond the, the computer or the mind itself. Right. But we are that. But we are that. And we're experiencing it. So even though uh, the mind is not really capable of giving us the whole picture, we are already the whole picture. And here we are living together. And here we are living together. I was thinking of you because you are such an expert on uh, the Constitution. Not an expert, but you're very interested and you're interested in the founding fathers. And um, I share with you my admiration for... Declaration of Independence, for example, and the idea behind the Declaration of Independence, as Jefferson presented it, was that uh, we can be free and equal, and we can have government with the consent of the governed. Well, we don't have that. We don't have, we're not free and equal, and we're not 
living here with the consent of the governed. Uh, the consent of the governed really means that we each are free to accept or not accept the governance that's regulating our lives. But that's not the case. In fact, we are compelled to be obedient. So how does the consent work in, in our lives? By living in a place like Mendocino, we have freedom that is so much greater than anybody in the city can even imagine. But, um, and, you know, my quest really has been... Uh, let me just stop you right there. Yeah. You said something that really caught my attention, that we live in, with a sense of freedom that people in the city can't even imagine. Right. There's a lot in that, Peter. I'd like you to just <clears throat> elaborate on that. Because there's a great deal in that. Those of us who were part of that movement that you were part of, the Back to the Land, we were onto something. We were onto something very important, and we've been living our lives that way now for close to 50 years. But the people in the cities not only don't know that, don't know the extent to which they're living with stress and fear as a result of that kind of living. Exactly. But the movement of the world historically and presently is towards more city living and away from country living. You do know that. Well, and there the, are reasons for it having to do with, with nature and geography. Well, of course, but the, the thing that's happening is the population is increasing and increasing. And so people go to the cities because that's the most simple way of earning a living. Exactly. And so we have huge cities now with 20 million, 30 million people and, you know, chaos. So... How then do we move forward in this situation? And, you know, it has to be that we are living our own way, doing what we love to do. I have uh, the three steps that I designed sort of for myself and for my kids. The three steps are one, the first step is admit and recognize that you are free to live your life as you wish. Your fulfillment is up to you. It's nobody else is going to provide you with that fulfillment. The second step is we are here in, uh, in concert, in effect, and we have certain skills and certain abilities. The thing to do in the second step is to develop those skills into our love, to develop our talents, I'm sorry, I meant to say talent, to develop our talents into skills so that we can be excellent, so that we can excel at what we love to do. Having done that, having recognized that we're free to live this life and our fulfillment, having recognized that we've got the ability to develop our skills into, our talents into skills, then we can use those skills to work with others for our mutual benefit without harming anyone. And that mutual benefit is really the key to communi community. When we engage in transactions that achieve a mutual benefit, we move forward. If there's one person who is not really benefiting from it, then it won't move forward. Our, our lives just very naturally require cons consent and agreement and the idea that we live in an adversarial society is absolutely in our way. 
we can't live comfortably in a, an adversarial society. And that's why the Harmonious on Purpose event is so important, because we do not need to engage in human conflict in order to leave, live this life. The voice that you hear saying that we do not need to live in conflict, that we can live harmoniously, is the voice of Peter Wells. He's our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Peter, we've laid some of the groundwork during the first half of this program for your description of your festival and for your whole concept, and I'd like you to now go into some more detail on Harmonious on Purpose, not just the festival, but the concept in general to elaborate for us on how each of us might take seriously what you're saying about the importance of living in concert and how each of us might take seriously the importance of the, of the possibility that we can live with little conflict. And when we have conflict, we can resolve it with love. Right. Well, you know, the, uh, the organization of the society um, is an adversarial. It's an adversarial legal system. There's an adversarial um, political system. We see that very clearly. The whole country is divided between opposing forces in the mind, in the thought process. More amazing than anything is that here in this democracy, which is really an adversarial democracy. It's not a consenting democracy. That in this adversarial way of life, we obviously have an adversarial government. Now, how can a democratic government be against the person? We have government against the person at this point. We've accepted it. He, that The government official is treated just like the old kings or the old rulers, as given total power over the people. So how, how do we deal with this? Well, we come to a place like Mendocino where we're free to be who we are. But the other thing is to notice that the power within us is more to the point than the adversarial way of life would suggest. We're actually here enjoying this life as a whole being. We're not just thinking about conflict. But the thing that is so remarkable that I know that you will um, understand is that in a democracy where the freedom of the person is supposedly understood, in our democracy, it's not. We have um, government employees, millions of government employees working against the person against individual people. What could be the alternative? I don't really see it except in Mendocino. In Mendocino, we have a way of life where we leave each other alone and we enjoy our own creative work and our relationships without being adversarially monitored. So how then, the, the real work is how do we get to a true democracy? How do we get to a democracy where the real consent of the person is allowed and developed? We have to live in a place such as Mendocino, 
where we can actually express this freedom without being um, jailed. How do we change from a, from a whole governmental and political construct in which so much emphasis is placed on making mistakes, doing something wrong, getting in trouble, getting caught, getting found out, to a supportive system where it's understood that we all make mistakes. We're not talking about personal malevolence. We're talking about honest mistakes. And where we get taught how to correct the mistakes. I'm thinking personally right now, I just went through two major audits. They took about a year. One was an IRS audit and one was an EDD audit. And I'm pleased to say we passed with the flying colors. Uh, This is over at Wilbur Hot Springs in Calusa County. Um, But there's always that feeling when one's going through an audit that will they find out something that's going to cause me a lot of trouble? There is rarely a feeling, except when I personally talk with the auditors because I have this attitude, but there's rarely a feeling of, I'm so glad you're here because I'd love to improve the skills of keeping our records, and you're an expert, so you'll teach us what to do. And if it turns out that we made some mistakes, we'll correct the mistakes and we'll move on happily as good citizens. And I think that's an interesting example of, of, uh, of, of an adversarial aspect, which doesn't really need to be. And I think if you transfer this over to many other uh, areas of our functioning, we'll see what you're talking about, that there's sort of an adversarial, I'm going to catch you aspect of government that we need to do something about so that we feel that, we're, that we've created a government to support us rather than a government to hassle us. Right. Right. This whole concept that you mentioned of, uh, of the government is there by the consent of the governed has disappeared. The government acts as though it's, it's an entity in and of itself. It's the king. Correct. It's the ruler. Correct. And it can dominate. But here in this village called Mendocino, and to a lesser but certain extent in Fort Bragg, which is a city and has a city council, there is much less of this. There's much more of a feeling of we're just in this together, living our lives, and what we can, what can we do to cooperate and bring eggs to our neighbor because we've got more than we can eat. Well, that's great. However, you know, that's the village itself. I walk the headlands almost every day, and I look at the people walking around, uh, visitors, tourists, and there's a mood in the village of acceptance. They don't realize that, you know, there's no parking meters, there's no police. And they're walking around, and often I will talk to a couple or two, and uh, they didn't realize why they were feeling so comfortable and free. There is no ruling authority overwhelming them. They're living and walking and being just who they are. They don't have to think about... So what we have in Mendocino... We have a way of life that is, you know, I've been here for over 40 years, and I know many, many people, all of us have been here living this really free life. We've proven that you can live in a way that is not subject to false authorities. Yes, there's taxes that have to be paid, and yes, there's the highway patrol out on the highway, all of that 
still exists, of course. But in our day-to-day lives, we are actually free. And the, the village itself prospers. For the past 40 years, all the people, all of us who have been living here, have been living this wonderful lifestyle. What are we saying then about the larger society as a whole, Peter? Are we, are we considering, is, is, there, is it anywhere within the realm of reality to consider the possibility that we need another mass exodus from the cities? Is, is, or is it too late for people to go out into the hinterlands and, and create little communities all around the United States because the land has already been bought up by huge corporations that are using it for industrialization. What do we do? Um, or do well, we just happily live here in this, in this idyllic community and say, you know, this is, you know we'll, we'll just watch the world go by and they're going to have to deal with what they have to deal with? Is there, what I'm saying is, is there transfer, is there generalization of your concept here, harmonious on purpose. The generalization of it is that it's within us. That the change is happening one person at a time. And our consciousness is changing. Rather than deferring our own inner being to the outside authority, we're now celebrating who we actually are. That's a kind of a spiritual rebirth that's going on. And it's internal. It's one person at a time. A spiritual rebirth, you believe, is happening. I do. Let us hold that thought and take this call. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I find this conversation quite interesting, but um, I wanted to bring up the issue that when we talk about government and institutions, they're comprised of people, too. Um, I have worked in various sectors um, from private, public, and um, government sector, and institutions are created based on uh, laws that were passed that people sometimes want and sometimes don't. But when you look at government as adversarial or um, it's basically you're looking at your neighbors as um, such. So I think we need to change the conversation uh, when we go to a, I see this in a grocery store in Mendocino. <laughs> We're not, I, you know, this is not La La Land. There's people with their um, different opinions, and, you know, they look at things also differently. And we got our impatience, and we got our inability to understand that the person that's your standing in front of is a human being and you know whether you're at a city council meeting or Mendocino um, any type of commission whether it's county or local there's um, people bringing their distrust and adversarial uh, behaviors so it's it's just not the institutions it's the drilling down to the individual well, I, I hear you. Of course, you know, everybody who is hired by the state, everybody who's hired by the government institution is a person. And that person is living their life. The relationship to the authority, the relationship to the institution can get very muddy. I mean, we have 
all kinds of um, uh, police problems. We have prosecution problems that are um, virulent against the person. Every single person is involved with living this life. And whether your job is for a government or for some business corporation, you're still a whole being and dealing with everything that a whole being has to deal with. What I'm talking about is that the the adversarial relationship in the legal situation, it's one side against the other. We have prosecutors and defenders. It's a, a game of us against them or me against him. Uh, there's also, in the political field, we've seen that. We've seen an election that was totally insane. And we have... Um, an inst a government institution that is completely divided against itself. We have a government that is actually self-destructive in a lot of its work. And my hope, and I believe our, our real strength, is in the person. It's in the development of the person to be able to live their life according to their own inner sensations. I'm not against the institutions, per se, but... And certainly, you know, at Albion River Inn, I've dealt with building inspectors, health inspectors, IRS, all kinds of government. And I always, the person behind the office is the real event. It's not, I mean, we have, we have a real problem. One of our problems in the world as a whole is the um, sovereignty of the nation. The sovereignty of the king was taken by uh, the national government of England when they cut off the head of Charles I. And then when the, the American colonies rebelled against the British and they sent um, all of their... Um, they fought a war. Uh, the ruling authority was passed down from the conqueror, from William the Conqueror. And the power that has been held by the government is like a, a, a conquest. I believe we've got to evolve out of that. And what is happening in Mendocino and many other places is that we are becoming accustomed to being a whole person and not being swayed by the authorities into a position that um, works against us. The, um, the whole change is going from, we've got the sovereignty of the nation now, and all around the world we have police states. Each nation can do what it likes with its people, and it punishes, it prosecutes, it jails, it kills, because it has the power to do that. What we need now is we need the, uh, the understanding to become a, uh, a new consciousness which recognizes that the person, the individual being, is sovereign. That's what we're hearing more and more, Peter, that we need a new consciousness. Yes. It's, it's hard to wrap one's consciousness around the concept of a new consciousness, but we're talking really about a new consciousness. Let's hold that thought and take this call. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. In Fort Bragg this year, 44 bicycles have been stolen. So we need statistics, real statistics. Also, 
before the English came to America, the Native Americans were already here, and they had their own forms of government. And there were other European forms of government in the United States, and they were obliterated 241 years ago. So the founders, supposedly 241 years ago, were not the real original founders. We were obligated all of a sudden, 241 years ago, to accept a form of government that's totally alien to the people who have been on this America for 130,000 years. Uh, I'd like to say one final thought, and that is that how do we get every single person to look in the mirror, to look at themselves? Uh, it's very easy. We've become so used to pointing fingers. We don't want to accept what we do wrong, so we project our insecurities, our faults, our anger, our frustration. We point the finger, yet it is. it begins with us. Um, I lashed out. Well, no, I don't want to get into that. I really do want to get into that, but... I'm scared to do it in public, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for that statistic on 44 bicycles being stolen in Fort Bragg. Please, now hear this. If you know of a bike that was stolen, if you've heard about a bike that was stolen, please spread the word. Tell the people who stole the bikes to simply return them. You've taken a bike... You've used the bike. Return the bike. Let's see how many of those bikes we can actually get returned to their owners of those 44 bikes. That would be something that would be very interesting to do. I'm getting a signal here from Mike. Do we have another phone call? Certainly. Let's take it, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. My name's Ron. I live in uh, Laytonville. Hi, Ron. Anyway, uh, what I was thinking about for a long time since I've been up here is that, uh, that to get along with people, you have to have love. We talked about that. But as far as governments go, communism will not work without love. And capitalism doesn't work well with it, with love. You know, so there's a problem there. So if we have some kind of sweeping spiritual consciousness, awakening that uh, people need to have more love and compassion for each other instead of uh, hate and fear. Thank you. That's beautifully said, and I appreciate your calling in. I personally agree with you that both the communist and the capitalist systems have failed us. Love has not failed us, but we have not yet figured out how to run a government with love. But our guest today, Peter Wells, is telling us that there's a spiritual awakening going on, and perhaps we're going to come up with a new kind of consciousness that will formulate a completely different system that we've never even heard of before for how we can cooperate and live together. But you are definitely right, dear listener. The capitalist system is based on competitiveness and the communist system is based on too much government control of everything. 
We need to just simply discard them and move on to totally new systems. We have another caller. Let's take it, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, thank you for the program. You're welcome. Um, I would like to observe that I think you're living in a dream world. I'm the story, the news of killings and robberies and beatings and rapes that I get out of the Mendocino Coast is rather disturbing. And as I live, don't live on the coast, but I live in an intentional community, my landlord went on to become a serial killer who killed 23 innocent men, women, and children for his own gratification. So I think you're closing your eyes to the reality of human nature and the world around you. He did what he wanted to do. My Without word, this is, this is an incredible story. You, you're, uh, you live here on the coast, the Mendocino coast? and oh, you had a, I, live, I live inland. Well, but do you live in the county of Mendocino? Yes. And you had a landlord who killed 23 people? And you can Google him, the whole story, and there are films on YouTube. About I will. Everything. What's his name? Leonard Lake. Leonard Lake? And he killed 23 people. And you're hearing about Holda. I see I'm, uh, uh, Susan Jewell is standing right next to me. She's about to do her wonderful classical musical program, and she's shaking her head. Yes, she's heard of this guy. When was that, Susan? Do you recall? You should Google him. In the 80s? Well, I understand what you're saying and why you're saying that we're living in somewhat of a, of a dream world. Let's hear what Peter Wells has to say about this. Well, I, I just really believe that within us is a real um, holy thing. I think we're very much um, living this life in a uh, humane way, most of us, especially on the coast, and with compassion, and uh, our own individual beings are enjoying it. I did want to say one thing about the bicycles. The, uh, there was a guy at a school called Summerhill, and a fellow called A.S. Neal who ran it. And there was a, a guy, a kid, who kept on stealing bikes, and they tried to figure out what to do about it, and he said, well, it's simple. Let's give him a bicycle. What, perhaps what's needed in Fort Bragg is an easy way of getting a bicycle. There are in the city and in different places ways to rent very cheaply a bicycle. Anyway, I just be that more than anyway. That's a, that's a, that's terrific that you pointed that out because. And I remember A.S. Neal. And for those of you who, who haven't seen his book, it's a wonderful book called Summer Hill. And any of you who are raising children definitely want to read the book Summer Hill. But what we're talking about here is not accepting 44 bikes as merely a bunch of crime, but looking for positive ways to deal with what's behind the problem itself. Right. And that's what Peter Wells has dedicated his entire life to. That's what Harmonious on Purpose, the festival, is about. And I want to conclude the program by reminding you all that the Harmonious on Purpose festival is on Saturday, September 9th, Saturday, September 9th at the Casper Community Center. Again, Saturday, September 9th, 12 p.m., Casper Community Center. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, It's Richard. always a pleasure having you and, and being with you. It's certainly, we see each other in addition to here. Yes. But it's great to have you here. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We'll be back in two weeks 
at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is working very hard for. It takes a lot of work to have good health, but it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.